Amen. Well, good morning. Glad you're here. We continue our series on 1 Peter, and we're looking at uh, resident aliens being here, resident, but not being from here ultimately, aliens. So we're here, but we're not here. And we continue to talk about living a countercultural lifestyle this morning in chapter 3. So let's look together. If you've got a Bible, at 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. First Peter chapter three, verses 18 to 22. Hear the word of the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So I want us to consider three truths from these verses. The suffering of Christ, first. The second is the victory of Christ. Third, the importance of baptism. And I know that sounds like a quintessential meddling Baptist preacher reminds me of one pastor who one time said there was a sermon on Genesis 1 to 3 and the points were Adam in the garden, Adam's rebellion in the garden, and third, a few comments about believer's baptism. But trust me, it's actually in the text. Just wait, be patient with me. So first, let's consider the, the suffering of Christ. We saw that there in 1 Peter three eighteen. The suffering of Christ. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to, de- put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So again, our verse starts with four. And anytime we see four, anytime we see therefore, these are really important connecting words. It connects us back to what's gone before. And so we've been talking about what it is for us as believers to display the rule of God and declare the rule of God. And so this connects us to what he said. We are to display God's rule by loving each other, being humble, being compassionate, not repaying insult with evil. We're to declare the hope we have in us. We're to be willing to suffer in doing good. For Christ suffered once for sins because Christ suffered. So we do all that we do because of and in light of the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. I will remind us of this regular, I should say the Bible will remind us of this regularly. The message of Christianity, the main message of Christianity is not be better. It's not do better. The main message is we cannot be better and we cannot do better because of our sin. But Jesus died on our behalf. He suffered once for sins. And so we're called to display and declare the kingdom because Christ suffered for us. Because he did this for us, we then seek to be better and do better. That order is really important. And Jesus is our example. We've seen that. We can endure suffering because Jesus did. But praise God, he's more than an example, right? We saw that. Look over at chapter 2, verse 21. 
to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Then he quotes Isaiah 53, suffering servant. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So Jesus is both an example, but he also bears our sins. The cross is so important. He's both the provision for our life, but he's also the pattern for how we are to live. And he died. He suffered, Peter says, once for sins. We just sang, once and for all, he offered up his life. Once and for all, the perfect sacrifice. If you're familiar with your Bible, familiar with the Old Covenant, you know that the sacrificial system, sacrifices were offered over and over and over again because as Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, but Jesus suffered once and for all. We read Hebrews 9, but I want us to look at it again. Flip over, flip back just a couple pages. You'll have James and Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. It was only... That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he's appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He suffered once for sin. Flip over a page to Hebrews chapter 10. See the same message. Hebrews 10 verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Christ suffered once for sins. Do you know what that means? That means you can rest. That means you can cease striving to gain God's favor. Give it up. It can't happen. You will never be good enough. You cannot earn his favor. Jesus has earned his favor for us. And so you can rest in him, rest in his finished work on your behalf. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the righteous in place of the unrighteous, the righteous as the substitute for the unrighteous, the perfect son of God in the place of guilty sinners. Jesus was the righteous one. He's the only righteous one who's ever lived. He lived perfectly, pleasing the Lord, fulfilling the law. He had no sin. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse we all ought to memorize. God made Christ to be sin who himself had no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. I wonder this morning, do you find yourself weak? Do you know you don't measure up? As James puts it, do you know that you stumble in many ways? Peter has good news for you this morning. Join the crowd. All of us are unrighteous. The good news is Jesus died for the unrighteous. We're the sinful ones. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. We fail to center our lives on God. We choose lesser gods. We don't keep his commands. We get our identity from other allegiances. We've all sinned in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions. We are unrighteous. God requires righteousness. This is the fundamental problem of humanity, but God sent his righteous son to suffer in the place of unrighteous sinners once and for all. We don't have to suffer for our salvation. We don't have to try to earn it. We trust in Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. This passage is teaching what many passages in the Bible teach, and that is what theologians call substitutionary atonement. Jesus was our substitute. He made atonement for us. He made peace between sinful people and a holy God at one minute by being our substitute, by bearing the penalty we deserve. That's the point of the cross, brothers and sisters. That's the point of the Christian faith. In our place condemned he stood. The great exchange. He redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. How did he do it? By becoming a curse in our place. For whom did he do it? For us. We've already seen Peter allude to Isaiah 53 several times. The song of the suffering servant. There we read these glorious words. This suffering servant took our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And brothers and sisters in Christ, if this truth doesn't warm your heart, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Probably three problems. Either one, you don't understand the depth of your depravity. Or two, you don't understand the heights of God's holiness. Or three, you don't understand the grandeur of the grace of Christ. But this truth, above all truths, ought to make us shout hallelujah out loud, if it not least, in the hearts. <laughs> this is such great news. I mean, I wonder, what is your greatest problem in life? I wonder what you would say if I asked, what is your greatest problem currently? wonder what you would say. There's many problems, right? We've all got many problems all the time. What is it? Is it sickness? Is it finances? Is it family struggles? Is it LeBron got swept in the finals? Notice I didn't say the Cavs. I said LeBron. Texas heat, difficulties at work. I mean, we've got all kinds of problems. And they're legitimate problems, but brothers and sisters, your greatest problem is that you're unrighteous. And God requires, the God of heaven requires perfect righteousness. That is our fundamental problem. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, he becomes your substitute. He takes your place. He stands in our place. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Your greatest problem has been solved by the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Why do you think Peter keeps going back? Peter just continues to go back to the cross, doesn't he? He'll say something about the cross, and then he'll say a little bit about what we need to do, and then he'll say, because of the cross, and then he'll say, in light of the cross, he's going to remind us again and again, just like every apostle, every writer of the New Testament is going to push us back to the cross constantly because we are what, like we sing, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We forget the good news all the time. This was the problem of Israel. Read through Numbers. Read through the Psalms all the time. God is calling his people to remember because we're a forgetful people. We forget. It's so frustrating. I remember hearing John Piper one time say, it's like he's got to wake up every day and get saved all over again because we're so forgetful. Reminds me of the, the two old couples and they were just sitting back reminiscing about their favorite restaurants and they're talking about, you know, yeah, we'd go to this one on our anniversary all the time, but he, one of them couldn't remember the name. And so he's talking about the food and how good it was. And he asked his friend, you know, he's telling him, you know, we used to go to our anniversary. It's over there on Pete Street. I cannot remember the name of the restaurant. What is that flower, you know, that has uh, thorns and red and it's, you know, pretty. And his buddy says, Rose. And he goes, yeah, 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 Rose. Hey, Rose, what's the name of that one restaurant that we used to go at in our restaurant? <laughs> our anniversary we are forgetful people and so Peter and all of scripture will send us back to Calvary again and again he will not let us go far without a reminder of what took place on that hill and the way Peter goes back to the cross again and again really is remarkable if we know Peter right remember Peter Matthew 16, Jesus is telling his disciples again and again that I must suffer and I must die. He tells them again and again that it just couldn't get through their thick skulls, especially Peter. And Peter's the one that had the boldness to pull the Lord away and say, never Lord. Two words that really don't go together, right? You don't issue a command to the one you're addressing as your Lord. But he says, never Lord. You're not dying. You're not suffering. Remember what Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why does he say that? Well, if the careful reader of the Gospel of Matthew, again, that's Matthew 16, way back in Matthew chapter 4, remember Satan himself comes and tries to tempt our Lord with various things, one of which is, I will give you the, all the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship me, Satan says. And what does Jesus say? Very similar to what he would later say to Peter, away from me, Satan. You see, both Satan... And Peter, they wanted to try to bring about the kingdom without the cross. And Jesus says, you don't understand the plan of God. You don't understand the way I work. There is no kingdom without the cross. To try to suggest that the kingdom can come without the cross, Jesus says, is satanic. He came to suffer. That's what he came for. Once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. And notice the reason Jesus came. It's there in verse 18 of 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. This is the goal. The goal of the cross is that we might be brought to God himself. Just think with me about all the blessings of the gospel. Adoption, justification, being declared in the right, having our sins forgiven, being granted new birth, clean consciences, new meaning, new purpose, new fulfillment, sanctification, growing in holiness, better marriages, better families, 
Better employees, given the gift of the Spirit, and many more, but none of those are the end game. All of those are a means to the end. The end is that we might get God. Jesus died to bring us to God. The forgiveness of sins is a huge blessing of the gospel, but it's a means to the end. It's merely removing a barrier between us and God so that we can have access to him. That's why the veil was torn. In the temple where one man one time a year would be able to access God's presence in the most holy place, there was this very thick temple, about an inch thick. And as you know from your Bibles, as Jesus died on the cross, that veil tears from top to bottom. In other words, now there's access. Before it was one man one time a year in the most holy place, now the veil is torn and it's access for anyone who will trust in Christ. And it starts at the top. The tear begins in heaven to show this is God's doing. No more separation. Now we have access to the Father. It's cliche, but it's true. The Christianity really is more of a relationship than a religion. It's about knowing him. I wonder, brothers and sisters, does it make you excited to think about knowing the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Not know about him, not know your Bibles. Do you know God? We have access so we can hear from him in his word. We can speak with him through prayer. This was the goal all along. Just think about the story of the Bible. God's walking in the garden with his first creation, his first image bearers. Then they're expelled. We lost relationship right there in the garden. And the rest of the story of the Bible is getting back to God's presence. That's why in all of the promises, starting early on, way back in Genesis 17, there's this covenant formula that we hear dozens of times in Scripture. God's going to make these promises. He's going to get the stuff out of the way, the sin and the disobedience and all that, so that God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. That little phrase occurs in Genesis 17. It occurs in Leviticus and the law and the prophets in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. It occurs in 2 Corinthians and Hebrews. And then the very last chapters of our Bible, Revelation 21. The goal here is that he might be our God and we might be his people. This relationship with God is the end game. And Jesus died to bring us to God. Access. Peter says this Jesus was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. The Bible mentions the cross more than the resurrection. It is right to be cross-centered, but of course we know that without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. Anytime we see cross, we know that the resurrection is assumed. If Jesus would have stayed in the tomb, there would be no gospel. There would be no good news. But here we learn and elsewhere he was raised. The resurrection is central to our hope. Because of it, we have a living hope. We saw in 1 Peter 1.3. Because of the resurrection, we know that Jesus is God. We know that his work of salvation has been completed and confirmed by the Father. And we know at the end of the day that death is dead. We will rise with him. So that's the suffering of Christ. Secondly, Peter mentions the victory of Christ. Look there at verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit's. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. 
Now this verse is obscure. This is full of challenges, both textual and syntactical, lexical. When you combine all the options of all the interpretations of when did he go, where did he go, how did he go, what did he say, who did he say it to, one commentator says there are 180 different combinations of what these verses might mean, depending on how you take each one. Martin Luther said this about it. He said, it's a wonderful text, a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand and I cannot explain it, and there's been no one who has explained it, end quote. So let's just move on. Let's just keep moving. <laughs> just kidding. We'll tackle it. But let's stop and just be thankful to the Lord that very few passages are actually this obscure. The vast majority of God's word is crystal clear and can be understood by a four-year-old. But on occasion, we do bump into these more difficult ones. Peter actually has a couple in this section, but then we'll see some more before we finish out. So as we look, we try to dive in here for a minute. Keep in mind Peter's main purpose. Peter wants to encourage the church that is suffering. That's Peter's aim in writing, that the church would stand firm in grace. At least we know what we know, right? And I think the basic point is Christ is the righteous, victorious one. That's the basic point. But out of these 180 different combinations of what these verses might mean, there have been three that have kind of rose to the top, three that are most popular. First option, some people think that this is the spirit of Jesus preaching through Noah. So as Noah's preaching, it's the spirit of Jesus through Noah as he warned of God's coming judgment. Many hold to this. I like this option. Augustine taught it. Uh, it would fit with 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, where we've already seen that the spirit of Christ speaks through the prophets. That's definitely true, but I don't think this one quite fits the particulars of this verse. But that's option one. Option two, others say Jesus descended to preach to those disobedient humans who lived during the time of Noah who are now in hell. He descended into hell. This is found in the controversial line in some versions of the Apostles' Creed that he died and descended into hell or Hades, the place of the dead. Uh, could be, I don't think so, for a few reasons. It's also probably worth mentioning that some who hold this view, a minority, think that this is teaching what's called a, a post-mortem opportunity for salvation so that people can die in their unbelief and be in hell yet have a second chance. I don't think that is being taught in this passage and it would contradict the rest of Scripture. We already looked at Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. But also, this is only to a select few. Those who were at the, alive at the time of Noah. This isn't all people of all time. So I don't think either of those options work. Third, some say Jesus proclaimed victory to fallen angels who stirred up wickedness in the time of Noah. Probably referring to the fallen beings in Genesis 6, which speaks of these fallen angels who disobey God. And it all happens right before Noah there in Genesis 6. There's an allusion here in the next letter. Look up, Flip over a few pages to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2 verse 4. Through these he's given us his very great and precious promises. No, sorry, not 2 Peter. Yeah, 2 Peter 2 verse 4. That was 1. 2 Peter 2 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, so we're talking about angels, but sent them to hell... 
putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Jude 6 also alludes to this. I think it's talking about fallen angels. That's what spirits always mean. Spirits means, in the New Testament, spiritual beings, non-human creatures. So the point here is Christ's victorious proclamation following his resurrection as he ascended. That order is really important, and I think the NIV nails it. Look there at 1 Peter 3.19. After being made alive, I think that's the right translation. After being made alive, he makes proclamation. So Jesus is resurrected, and this proclamation happens after he was raised. And it's a message, I think, of victory to these evil spirits that Christ has ascended. Christ is the victor. Christ has all authority. I think that's the message. Similar to what we see in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 18, Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It's a message of victory. Christ is the victorious one. Christ has authority. We see the same thing in Colossians. Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I think this is what Peter's saying. I wouldn't lose an arm for it. There's some views I hope I would if someone said, hey, if you don't recant the deity of Christ, we're going to chop off an arm. I hope I would lose an arm. If someone says, if you don't change your view on 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, you'll lose an arm. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lose an arm. I'll take another view. But I think that's what he's saying. I don't want us to get too bogged down here, and I don't want us to get too bogged down in the details, but there is this background document written during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament that was actually lost for much of our history. It was lost from the 2nd century all the way to the 18th century, and it was discovered. And it's a book, it's a Jewish writing called First Enoch, and it's really similar. And it's kind of a commentary on Genesis 6. And I think Peter probably was familiar with that document, and he's talking to an audience that would be familiar with the stories, familiar with these fallen angels from Genesis 6, and familiar with... Noah. And where Peter's writing in Asia Minor is supposedly the place that Noah's ark landed when the waters receded. So I think he's probably just using some allusions to Genesis 6, but also to a document that would have been familiar to his audience, which is strange to us. But here's the point. After his resurrection, he proclaimed victory to the demonic realm. Why does this matter? Remember, the church is being persecuted. The church is in a bad place. So Peter's saying, take heart. The Lord wins. We win because he wins. And so you can persevere. You can take comfort. God's defeat of evil has begun. So persevere. We know the end of the story. So we've seen the suffering Christ. We've seen the victorious Christ. And now the importance of baptism. Look there at 1 Peter 3.21. 
And this water, we were saved, they were saved through water. And this water, verse 21, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So the flood water symbolizes the baptismal waters. Like Noah, we are a persecuted minority. He says there's only eight of them and the whole world drowned yet. He saved you. Like Noah, we're surrounded by hostility, yet called to witness boldly. The flood was a judgment and Jesus alludes in Matthew 24 that we escape judgment just as Noah escaped the flood. We escape the second flood of judgment because we've already passed through the waters of Christian baptism. The water saved Noah from destruction which symbolizes baptism. So the flood was sort of a type that pointed forward to Christian baptism because as we come to Christ, we die. That's what Romans 6, 3 says, right? We were baptized into Christ, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. And so baptism symbolizes our union with Christ where the old us dies, drowns in the baptismal waters, and the new us is raised up. Baptism symbolizes that union, crucified with Christ, buried with him, raised with him, which is one of the reasons we baptize by immersion. We go down into the water and we raise up out of it. But wait, Peter says it saves you. Baptism saves you? Haven't we already seen all kinds of things about the gospel? He hadn't mentioned anything about water yet. Just in 1 Peter, we've seen that we have an inheritance kept for us through faith in God's power. We call on a father, not a judge. We were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Everywhere, Scripture speaks with one voice. We're saved by grace through faith in what Christ has done on our behalf. And then at the end of verse 21, notice he says we're saved. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. Baptism saves only in the sense that it represents what Christ has done. It's a symbolic representation. The water does nothing. And this is contrary to our friends that are Roman Catholics and even here in Abilene, many of our friends that are Church of Christ. Notice what he says real quickly. He qualifies real quickly about the water. Look at verse 21. This water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not the water. But it's the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the pledge of a clear conscience, not the water that removes dirt. It's not the water of baptism that saves, but it's faith in Christ. It's our pledge towards God. That's what baptism is about. It's a pledge to live for God. It's a public identification. The word baptism is actually not an English word. It's, we've just anglicized it. We've just transliterated. The word baptizo just means submerge. It means immerse. Some Christian traditions sprinkle, but the word doesn't mean sprinkle. The word means immerse. It means to dunk. And maybe some of you were baptized as an infant. And if you were baptized as an infant, I would encourage you to reconsider it. Uh, biblically, it's not a baptism. Biblically, you just got wet. Bible teaches baptism for believers by immersion. So if that's you, we'd love to talk about taking a next step of obedience to believers' baptism. It's important to get right, right? The Lord Jesus left us with two ordinances, communion and baptism. We want to get it right. The word means to immerse. It's a representation of our faith in Christ. It's going public with Jesus. 
In Baptist churches, oftentimes we've replaced this going public with the altar call, which we don't find anywhere in the Bible. In the Bible, the going public is baptism. It's where we're up here saying, I'm with him. I am pledging myself towards God. It is a public identification. We're with him through faith. We've died with Christ. We've raised with Christ. And baptism symbolizes that. It marks a break with our old way of life. And we're changed. Also often in Baptist churches, we've tended to baptize too young. And so maybe that's you. Maybe you were baptized very early, too early, and you really didn't understand what you were doing. But later in your life, you came to faith. And you understood it. If that's the case as well, I would say you weren't baptized. Biblically, you got wet. And so maybe you ought to consider now following in obedience to Jesus to be baptized as a believer. Again, me or any of the elders would love to talk more about it if that's you. We want to get it right. We want to follow in believer's baptism. We want to obey our Lord. Again, he gave us two ordinances. Baptism is the entrance marker into the Christian life. It's not the finish line. Sometimes we treat it that way. Let's just get to baptism. That's the finish line. No, the baptism is actually the starting line. Your baptism, friends, was your commission to ministry. It's the starting line for the Christian life, not the finish. We're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that is significant. It shapes who we are. Baptized in the name meaning we're given an identity. We are baptized in the name of the Father because he is our Father and now we are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son who is the King and therefore we are his servants. We're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit who sends us out on mission. And so our baptism commissions us with a new name, a new identity, a new family, brothers and sisters, a new King in whom we serve and a new Mission, because the Spirit sends us out as missionaries. Baptism is important. Peter began with the death of Christ in verse 18, and then at the end here, he moves to the exaltation of Christ. Look there at verse 21 again, 22. He's gone into heaven. He's at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. He is the king. He's ascended to heaven. He is at God's right hand, which is the place of all authority. Psalm 110 is God's favorite verse. The reason I say that is it's quoted everywhere more than any other verse, especially in the New Testament. It's quoted more in the New Testament, the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of Scripture. And I want to read from Acts chapter 2 where it's quoted. Acts chapter 2 verse 34 says this. Peter says this, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, and he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is the king of kings. He's on the throne. He is the one with all authority. He starts with his death, moves to his resurrection, finishes with his ascension. He's been given the name of, of all names so that the name of Jesus Christ, friend, every knee will bow. Every single tongue will acknowledge Jesus is who he said he is. He's the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 says he will reign and he will reign until... Every one of his enemies is put under his feet. That's what he's doing now. 
So be encouraged. Jesus has died for your sins. He was raised from the dead. He's gained victory over evil. He made proclamation of his victory. He's ascended to God as the one with all authority. And remembering our context, Peter would say, brothers and sisters, endure. Persevere. Stay the course. He's worth it.